Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is April 23rd, 2013, and this is episode 1,016, no, 1,116 of the Survival Podcast, 1,116 episodes now. Um, I have a cool one for you guys today. I am going to tell you right now, I'm going to take a little bit longer in the uh, intro segment because I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, having to lay my buddy Blackie to rest yesterday at some point during this, but uh, I've got a good interview. This interview actually was done last week, but I, I really couldn't even put it together uh, for you guys yesterday. I decided that taking a day off was just kind of an honor of my buddy. But uh, this is a good one. This is a guy named Gene Piercy, and when I first got the... Uh, the, the form, I really didn't dig into it too much. I kicked it over to Dorothy. said, hey, get this guy booked. Earth-sheltered homes. Definitely want to do this. Looked up performance buildings uh, uh, systems and, and saw what they were doing and thought this is a great uh, way to build a home. And I uh, wanted to get him on for it. Well, by the time I actually got him on, I realized who I was actually talking to. And he did mention it in his, uh, his application, but it was all about earth-sheltered homes. And then this was kind of thrown at the bottom. Gene is also known as Evil Roy. And Evil Roy is a cowboy action shooter, an overall national champion cowboy action shooter. So we're going to talk a little bit about that as well today uh, toward the end of the show. So this is going to be a twofer uh, with probably one of the coolest guys uh, I've ever met. Uh, and it's, uh, it's a good, lighthearted uh, show. Uh, after a day yesterday, it was pretty tough. Before I get to that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today is Backyard Food Production. You know, uh, guns are great. Uh, being able to protect yourself is great. Storing food is great. But we have limitations as humans, and we also have limitations in space and money. And that means that if we want to be really sustainable with our food, we have to bring production into it. If you get over to growingyourgroceries.com and get the, the DVD series, Growing Your Groceries, uh, also known as Backyard Food Production, it's just a name change, it's the same video, it's always been, um, you will get a video and an additional bonus uh, CD that will help you turn your backyard into a food production machine. That's the way to be sustainable with food. And the stuff you'll learn there will work in a small suburban backyard or a large acreage. It's pretty cool. Check it out today, growingyourgroceries.com, the awesome Marjorie Wildcraft. Next up today, Fortress Defense Consultants. Uh, I've said a lot of good things over, about them over the years, uh, but here's what I want to do. I just got happened to get an email yesterday. Um, about Fortress. And I'm just going to read the email for you, and I think it speaks better than me telling you how great they are. Uh, note for Jack. This is from Monty. I just finished up a weekend of training with Fortress Defense, and I was blown away. Anyone who's even thinking of owning a gun needs this course. I was amazed, especially with my background, how little I knew, how much I could benefit from such training. Thank you for putting Fortress on my radar. A little background, if it's relevant. It's relevant. Listen to this. I was an Army MP out of high school and later became an Army aviator, so I've shot my fair share of weapons in my primary with the 92FS. I have buddies who recently purchased pistols, and I told them we need to go shoot. Because I listened to your podcast, I was aware of Fortress Defense and thought this would be a better, uh, be better than taking them to a range. I honestly learned more than they did as beginners. I had more bad habits to unlearn, but more importantly, I learned what it means and the responsibility involved with owning and carrying a weapon. Thanks again, Monty. 
Well, there you go. I mean, that's about as good as it gets for uh, recommending a sponsor as someone that's actually gone, spent their money and their time there, and comes back with an after-action review like that. So check them out today, Fortress Defense Consultants. Remember, there's a trifecta of being an effective gun owner. One is gun. Two is ammo. No ammo, overpriced club. Three is the operator, the shooter. And you get that with consistent training. Check them out today, FortressDefense.com. Remember, if you cannot go to Indiana where Frank is, he will come to you if you put together a small group of shooters and uh, get in touch with them on doing a customized travel training. They do do that uh, for groups that are large enough. All right, um, next up, I want to remind you guys to uh, check out our gear shop. We have some cool stuff in there. Um, Kelly does a great job of running that. I know that the uh, first time around we had some issues with the gear shop. It, it didn't work out. We eventually had to close it down. But I have got a guy now running our gear shop that just run things 100% like a pro because this is business. Um, Kelly's been in the fulfillment industry for many, many years. This is what he does for a living, knows what he's doing cold. Uh, check it out today. Check out some of the cool shirts we have, the Sentinel stuff. We have some really cool stuff coming down the road eventually as well. Check us out today again, tspgear.com. Last but not least, do consider joining the member support brigade. If you'll do that, you'll get, a, uh, you get access to, um, the content that's available nowhere else. You also get uh, discounts to over 40 vendors, so your membership will actually pay for itself if you're a- purchasing stuff at all uh, in the preparedness industry. Um, before I bring Gene on, I want to say a couple things to the audience. Um, yesterday was a hard day. Yesterday was tough. Uh, for those that maybe don't read the blog and only get the audio of the podcast, uh, our dog named Blackie, who we've had for 16 years, um, we had to take him to the vet and have him put down. He pretty much crashed on Saturday, and uh, you know, you know, and you, you know, it's a Saturday, and it's like Saturday midday, and it's really tough to find a place to take him without taking him really far. And the dog hated the car; he hated the vet. So you got two things he hates, and you just don't not want that to be the last thing uh, that, that's there. Um, so the also we also knew Matthew was coming on Sunday, so we decided to see if he'd make it through the night, and he did. Um, and for the most part, he seemed like he was okay. He just was kind of in and out of it. And we loved on him and took care of him. And his, his boy got to see him one more time, even though his boy is not a man. And, uh, he said, so you, what are you going to do if he's still here tomorrow? And I said, well, we're going to take him because there's, you can't, he said, I, I don't want him like this either. So, um, we took him first thing in the morning to the vet and had him put down and he died in the arms of two people that love him and dog or person. You just really can't do much better than that at the end to have the people you love with you and there for you when you go. And uh, so that was a tough, tough thing. And I did it as best I could with a written tribute that's on the blog that you can read called 16 Years of Devotion. And uh, it's a hard thing to lose a dog. It's, you know, some people I think that are not dog owners would say it's just a dog. A dog that you have for that long becomes a, uh, becomes a member of your family and becomes a true friend. And in this case, this is a dog that, as far as I'm concerned, helped raise my son. Um, he was there for him from the time he was eight years old until, you know, yesterday. And uh, my son, uh, uh, my stepson, for those that don't know, has been through a lot of loss in his life, grandparents, his father, his uncle, um, at a very young age. Not, this is not recent stuff. This is all stuff that hit him, you know, eight years, ten years of age. Having that dog made a big difference. And uh, I think that dog is part of... Uh, a young man I'm really proud of. So this was laying to rest a family member. And I talked about the place that we uh, we buried him yesterday. And I found 
through the pain as I actually, you know, dug the grave for him and laid him to rest, actually a lot of closure and solace there. Um, the physical labor uh, was part of it, uh, but also in knowing that I did the last thing I could do. This is just, that's, there's nothing left to be done, and that he'll always be here on our property, and that we've found a place. You know, they always say the dogs are looking for their forever home when they're trying to adopt them out. And well, we found ours, so we'll always be here. We'll always own this place, and, and he'll always be there. And it's a beautiful spot. And uh, it makes me wonder. We, you know, we did a show not long ago on on uh, on simple burials and taking care of your own burial and, and things like that. If we haven't really lost something, that we let a third party, you know, take care of that for our family members, our, our human family members. Because I can tell you that after that was done, you know, you still feel bad. You still miss him. I mean, we'll miss him. Forever. I, I, I responded to one person yesterday who said they had lost uh, their husky uh, recently. But I understand because I lost my husky, you know, back in 2009. If you guys would have been around that long, remember. And uh, I thought about him as much yesterday as I did Blackie. As I was going through and looking at pictures of Blackie um, and, and, and remembering the dog that was because he'd been sick for so long. We looked at some of the pictures yesterday and we're like, I don't even remember that Blackie. But then you do. And uh, it's it's a it's a hard thing, but when that part was completed, even though I'm still going to miss him, even though he was part of this family for again six, 16 years, guys is a long time. That's that's you know that's longer than a lot of people stay in prison uh, for major crimes. That's that's a significant chunk of your your time. I mean, a lot of people you know check out at you know under 80. You're talking a quarter of a of, of a human lifetime for many people. Um, that's, that's a long time, but when that was done, there was some peace. There was some, I've now done everything I could have done and I've given him a good memory and, you know, life for the living goes on and for the departed changes is how I feel. I, I think that every living being, when it, when it comes to the end, their existence simply shifts and, uh, I think that at that point, that energy can see what's going on back here, and I think his tail would wag. So I wanted to tell you guys that because you guys are friends. And I also wanted to say thank you. I mean, it's, uh, you know, you work really hard, you do everything you can, and you know you're making a difference. You really do. But uh, when you do a post about your dog dying, I mean, as, as the thing that every dog owner goes through, and over 140 people within 24 hours show up and say, I understand, man. Uh, guys, it means a lot. It means a lot that you guys care. And uh, and thank you. Um, on a happier note, before I bring Gene on, I want to remind you guys, I am going to be at the Self-Reliance Expo on Friday and Saturday this week. It's going to be a great time. Friday, I'm just going to do an early meet and greet for you guys. If, for those who have been there before, you know how this works. You show up 30 minutes before everybody else gets in at the front door where you get into the show, and uh, either Ron or Scott will come and escort you in early, and you get to sit down in front of the stage, and I will be there along with Stephen Harris and David Crawford, of the author of Lights Out. We'll be taking your questions and having a Q&A for about 30 minutes. This is only for members of the Survival Podcast audience. Um, the only thing you need to know is that if you know that you're a member of the Survival Podcast audience because you know what it is and you show up there at the right time, you, they 
They will bring you in. You don't need a special secret code or something like that. And uh, I do this uh, in conjunction with Ron and Scott, who are good enough to allow me to. And uh, so I'll be doing that on Friday. Then I'll be hanging out on Friday for quite a while. Uh, I have to take a break and come down and do some work for my father-in-law, and then I'll come back. And maybe we'll try, you know, kind of impromptu, figure out a place to go have lunch or maybe even dinner and do both. And uh, that'll be that'll be fun. Uh, and then Saturday, I'm doing the same thing again with the same two guys again. And I imagine some people will come to both of them because you have more time, and you know it'd be great to have an hour with David, Steve, and and and, uh, and me. And then uh, later in the, that morning, I am uh, speaking, and I'm doing a two-hour uh, presentation on permaculture, where I'm going to go deep into various aspects of permaculture, show a lot of video, or not video, show a lot of pictures, uh, and I'm going to try to wrap the two hours at about an hour and uh, 40, so I leave about 20 minutes for questions. And then when I'm at these shows, guys, what I need you guys to know is, like, I will hang out uh, for a long time, and I will talk to people. So if your question doesn't get answered while I'm on stage, uh, we can stand around somewhere, we'll go find an area that we can hang out in at the show, and I will spend a lot of time with you guys. And I want you to guys to understand two things. Uh, number one, when I do these events, sometimes I have people that I see, like, you know, want to talk to me, but, like, they feel like, well, you know, the guy needs a break, he's got so many people talking to him or whatever. Or I see people, like, you know, like, the guy wants to talk to me, and his, his wife is, like, yanking him, like, give him a break. Don't do that, right? Just come talk to me. I mean, there's only so many people I talk to at one time, but if you'll come and talk to me, that's why I'm there. Um, I, I will be honest that there is a point where you feel like, okay, I need a break. When I need a break, uh, I will leave Or I will simply say, guys, I'll be back here in an hour. I need a break. And I'm, maybe I want to look around and, and talk to some people at the show or something. So don't hesitate to speak to me because if I need time and I need space, I'll let you know and I'll ask for it because that's why I'm there. Uh, I do these shows to be there with you guys, to meet with you guys, to talk to you guys, to hear your stories, to answer your questions. And uh, I want to see as many of you guys as I can. Uh, again, Arlington, Texas at the uh, Arlington uh, Convention Center, uh, Friday and Saturday this week. I'll put out a post with all the details and everything, times and all, uh, later today. Uh, with that, finally, I know it was long, but it was kind of a, a special situation that I wanted to you know, say a little bit about my buddy there. Uh, but now I get to introduce to you guys Gene Evilroy Piercy, and we are going to talk about earth-sheltered homes, cowboy action shooting, and something new I just heard about called wild bunch shooting, which is kind of like a offshoot of cowboy action shooting. Uh, and with that, hey, Gene, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Hey, we're glad to be here. Hey, I got you on to talk about something that I think is one of the coolest things in the world, which is earth-sheltered homes. And you run a company called Performance Building Systems that specializes in that. Can you just give us, uh, at first, just a little bit about your background and your company? Yeah, I started this uh, over 30 years ago. Uh, I lived in West Texas, and, uh, uh, you know, I'd actually sold a house, and it got blew away about five days later. And, <laughs> you know, I was living out there and having to hide in the cellar every, every spring, and the roof's getting beat off by all the hailstorms and all that. And then uh, I had moved out in the country a little bit. I still remember I was hooked up to propane, which I thought was too expensive. So I, I spent uh, quite a bit of money ditching the natural gas line, I think a quarter of a mile to hook up the natural gas. And by the time I got it done, Texas deregulated natural gas. So it went back up where the propane was. And I just thought, you know, this is stupid. <laughs> and so I tried to get somebody to build me an earth-sheltered house because that's the thing that came to mind, you know, to beat all these problems. 
And at that time, all there was was people that built a bunker-type house, which is very, very expensive. And, I, you know, I just couldn't afford it. So I still remember I was driving down a road in West Texas, saw a concrete dome. And I thought, you know what, if you're going to bury something, you know, that's the only thing that makes sense. So I pulled off the road and actually talked to the guy, and he was an architect that had built it and used it as a home. But he had to cast the uh, pie-shaped uh, sections and, and crane lift them in shape and uh, in the place and all that stuff. So anyway, I figured out a way to build concrete arches and domes and patented it, and it kind of – it turned into a business. You know, it really wasn't my plan to start with, but we've been doing it over 30 years, built lots of stuff. Um, we actually supply the structural forming system to, to use to build the structure itself, which is the hard part. Uh, and with our stuff, it's fairly easy. We've had do-it-yourselfers actually build a shell. And, you know, you get two stories, lots of glass, uh, so, we do, you know, you get a lot of solar gain typically. And, uh, you know, we've done some interesting projects. It's uh, We've done everything from all-out bomb shelters to what we normally do is a pretty standard three-bedroom, two-bath type houses. Um, you know, we've, we've just done some great, great projects, and it's been lots of fun, and the houses really do work. Yeah, they look awesome. So what you guys do is you provide structural components. You're not actually like a turnkey operation. Yeah, that's correct. We we uh, manufacture the stuff in Phoenix. Uh, we help with the plans and engineering. In fact, we insist on doing at least the engineering and plans for the shell, and we wind up usually doing it for you know the whole structure normally. But it's used to build the shell, and the reason we don't have a crew that goes around is because you know we're in Colorado fixing to move it to Texas. Texas, uh, and you know, if we had to send a crew out, it'd be very expensive to do that. And uh, it's set up so a local contractor or do-it-yourselfer can do the shell, and the inside's all pretty standard stuff. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. But as I'm looking at these homes, other than maybe some of the shapes of the walls that have a lot of character and things like that, the the inside is finished out the way you would finish out any home. What's really the uh, the magic and the difference is the 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 outside shell and then the earth sheltering that goes with it. Yeah, you're right on. Once you get on the inside, it's two before sheetrock walls. Uh, the front wall itself can be made out of anything from you know we've had them made out of logs, glass block two-by-sixes, masonry, whatever, and so that, that part's pretty standard. But the shell, if you were to do that on your own, that is a very tough project. Uh, and using our stuff, it's actually fairly simple. But, uh, you know, the first one was a nightmare to, to get going because of all the stuff we had to do to build one structure. Well, now uh, you or anyone else can call us, and we can supply that to you and make that shell fairly easy. And they're a nice places to live, but the electrical, the plumbing, the uh, interior walls, floor covering, all that stuff is pretty standard stuff. So you're exactly right. The shell is a tough deal, and once you get that up, uh, it's pretty easy. And, and quite honestly, to me, the shell is the easiest part of the, the whole project. One of the problems I had as I looked at new a new house, and I ended up with a pretty much a standard home, was securing financing for um, things that were unique. For instance, it wasn't an underground home, but it was a uh, a geodesic dome. And the price on it, I just considered a steal. I mean, the kitchen looked like it was worth sixty thousand, and the house was a little over two hundred, uh, and it was on eight acres. But I could not secure financing for it. Is that an issue for people a lot of times with trying to build a structure like this? Well, that's a really good question. It can be. Uh, the very first one we did in Phoenix was actually an FHA financed home. I think the oh, wow. two after that were uh, VA. But um, 
Yeah, they it can be. I, I would say that most people who want them get them, but it's not as easy typically as going down and buying a track house. It, and the and the reason for that is doesn't have anything to do with the structure so much as it's the appraisal process. You know, I'm a, I was a real estate broker and had a company that did that along with this stuff for years, and I'm very familiar with appraisal stuff. But the appraisal thing might be give me three comps and a mile and a half radius last six months or something. Well, you're not going to find that. And so that in itself throws the house into a non-conforming loan package. And these lenders anymore, uh, there's not that much stuff held in-house. There are generally some, but, but basically they package loans up and sell them to investor groups and all that sort of thing. And they don't want much in a way of unconventional loans. But, uh, you know, when I came to Durango, uh, we did that first one in Phoenix. Uh, FHA came to Durango. I, I financed it conventionally. I had real good credit and, you know, some down and all that. But uh, the local lender, they held a certain percentage of their loans in-house. They just simply held it. Uh, because I was, it looked like a good customer, which I was, and it was no problem at all. And there's several more around this area that are financed conventionally, but you hit right on it. Uh, that can be a problem. I think it can always be overcome, but, uh, and sometimes it's no problem. Uh, hmm. but in general, it can be. Yeah, that was exactly our problem was getting somebody to appraise the property. And you're going, and, and this wasn't even as unconventional as what you're doing. This was, uh, it was simply a roundhouse. It was built with shingles and two by fours and two by sixes and a concrete slab and, and we just couldn't get it to appraise. So we had to move on to other things. Um, but it's good to hear that there are ways around that. I think right now we have some issues with lending being a little tighter than it used to be. Yeah, lending in general is a little bit of a problem. And, you know, years ago, uh, Oak Ridge National Labs did a study that, um, all the appraisers are supposed to know about and they actually don't. Uh, but they printed a little booklet out that says if you run into this situation, it's actually very common. It's the same thing as building a log home in Phoenix, Arizona. <clears throat> you know, it's just non-conventional for that area. Sure. And so what they suggest is that you, uh, you know, and I've had appraisal courses myself over the years, so it's not hard to do. But anyway, you appraise the home um, and compare it to other energy-efficient homes in the area and then you rate it up or down based on the fact it's uh, earth shelter or whatever. And, you know, in Phoenix, we did so many of them <clears throat> that they actually added value to them. There was an appraiser there that years ago did those, and uh, he added value because they're obviously a, a better value, uh, sure. especially in sure. Phoenix where it's so blasted hot. What got me is I was like, you know, apparently the uh, this was down in Mansfield, and like, the city of Mansfield has no problem appraising it so they can tax it. <laughs> oh yeah, you know they got. That's a very good point. I've never yeah. had a, a somebody from a you know a taxing agency come to say they can't figure out a value. They always got a value, <laughs> and they do what normal people would do. They look at the square footage, how much land there is, and it's a house. It's four bedrooms or three bedrooms, and it's got X baths. And what would what's the market rate on that right now? Yeah, um, that's an absolutely great point because you know we just had ours done I think a year or so ago again. And the guy, you know, he wanted to know how to figure the square footage because it's a little different. Uh, but, yeah, there was no question. I, I'm paying the same tax rate as the guy next door. Sure, sure. Uh, now, you know, we're talking about our shelter at home today. So why should people consider doing this? Well, you know, our business is always better in hard times, which is now. You know, people get worried about energy costs, um, safety. You know, safety is a big issue right now. 
and uh, you know whether it be from natural elements or man-made stuff or whatever. And so our, our our typical customer is, I would say, a real conservative person who's interested in safety and energy cost. And uh, you know, I was talking to a guy up in Oklahoma today, young man, his family, and they want to build one, and they live in, you know, it tornadoes and all that rough weather West Texas has, uh, the same thing, and they want a safe place. And, uh, you know, the idea of just being earth-sheltered makes a lot of sense for a whole lot of reasons. And so our average customers, you know, that's kind of what they're doing. The, the other thing is the real tree huggers, I mean, the violent, you know, green, you know, just wild yeah. guys, they never build them. Uh, I, I get all <laughs> kinds of calls from those people. They want me to build them one so they can show it. But, you know, there's wild-eyed about this stuff, and I've had people in the house that broke out in tears, you know, because they felt the energy of the place. Well, they never got any money. They never yeah. have any money. No one In 30-plus years, not one of those persons have ever built one of these houses. <laughs> you know what? That doesn't surprise me at all. I, I take heat from people all the time about uh, my stance on global warming, and I'm like – I. I do everything I can to be environmentally friendly, and it's it's funny that the people that usually are the most hostile actually do the least, and it's uh, it's it's interesting. Yeah, they, um, they you know they they're out to make a statement. They, they if they drive a Prius, it's so people will think what they want them to think about the you know them, and it's not for the right reasons. I will say I can't think of a single customer that I've had over thirty years that has built one of these houses. Uh, uh, in regard to what other people might think about them, not one. Well, they built it for themselves. I mean, I, I look at it and go, it's probably not in my future to build one, but it might be in my future to build a small building uh, as a shelter and as a uh, almost use like a, a storage for things that need good environmental controls. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? A, a small model that's more of a, a tornado shelter? Because I live in North Texas, and we, we just had stuff blow through last night. That the worst of it went up in Oklahoma, but. This time of year, we have it over and over and over again. Yeah, we've had people do that. I think uh, that's actually an option for me in Texas. You know, the place I bought's got a nice house on it, and I can divide off a piece of the property and and build a earth shelter house, which is what I'm thinking. Or I could do a smaller house. I, I tell you, I can't tell you. You know, after living in West Texas, I can't tell you how. Uh, what a great feeling it is to be setting in something like this when the tornadoes are darting around and you're listening to the scanner to find out where they're at, hailstones and wind blowing, and you're sitting in there sipping your tea thinking, doesn't bother me a bit. You know that. Yeah, the only concern is for others at that point when you're in that type of a structure. For yourself, you're like, I, you know. Come on, hit dead dead center. And I've seen structures like this, not just earth sheltered, but just concrete monolithic domes get hit dead on and just, just stand through it. Yeah, they're really strong. I can tell you for one thing, you're going to be a very popular person in the neighborhood. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I mean, you're just about to, to move back down here, and I'd like to welcome you back. I think that you're, I don't know if you're familiar with the Walking to Freedom project that I'm running, but it's specifically for people like you who are, you know, basically, for lack of a better term, pissed off at the states that they're in for infringing on their rights and, uh, and getting to move uh, towards states with more liberty. Yeah, you know, uh, I've lived in Colorado, in Durango, in fact, uh, for over 30 years. Uh, I would tell anyone this is the nicest place on earth you can live, but I tell you, I'm just fed up with the 
with the politics. And, you know, I, I'm a competitive shooter. I'm a world and national champion shooter. I've traveled all over the country teaching stuff. In fact, a lot of other foreign countries. Uh, I'm a, on TV as a gun expert on gun stories and outdoor channel. You know, it's a, it's a big part of our lives and, and we've had a lot of fun with it. And, uh, Colorado has just gotten stupid. I mean, they're just absolutely insane. Uh, none of this stuff that they're doing will make a single bit of difference, uh, on, on anything they're worried about. And I'm just not too happy with the type of people that are moving into Durango. I, I told him, I said, you know, you guys keep this up, you'll be riding naked on the bus next. And I didn't move here for that. You know, I'd go hmm. to San Francisco if I want to do that. And so I, you know, I've lived in Texas for a long time, and I do like Texas. Uh, in fact, I like Colorado, except for the politics. So I'm going to move back. I'm, uh, I'll be able to read the newspaper again, and uh, you know, I'll be a very happy camper. And uh, you know, if people like-minded down in that part of the country, and most of Texas in general, I think. Well, I think we'll have to get together when you do. I don't know if you're familiar with the uh, northwest part of the Metroplex, but I'm from the Eagle Mountain area. Uh, near Eagle Mountain Lake. So you, based on what you've told me, you'll be less than two hours away. Yeah, you know, and if you ever need any help with your projects or stuff, I, you know, I am relatively high profile. I'm Evil Roy in the shooting world. Uh, <laughs> it's cowboy action stuff. I'm, you know, I'm really well known to that. I got products named after me and all that. So, you know, I, I'm having a good life here with the earth sheltered stuff. We've done everything from uh, very expensive homes to most generally modest price houses to all out bomb shelters and then i get to travel all over shooting and being famous i mean it's a it's a great deal see and i didn't know how how uh involved in the shooting world you were um when i first got the interview set up because it was based on the earth sheltered home so what i'd actually like to do is ask you a few more questions about that and then i'd like to talk about guns a bit because i think it's a unique opportunity that i didn't anticipate um but i want to try to split that in two so to speak uh, because I do want to you know, get a few more questions in on about earth-sheltered uh, technology. Uh, specifically, how does a person that wants one of these homes go about getting it built? Well, uh, you're asking very good questions. Uh, uh, you know, I just got a phone with that guy in Oklahoma, and he's a pretty typical guy. He's in, he tells me what he needs uh, as far as, you know, he's looking for four bedrooms, which is anymore is a pretty large house, and that kind of gave me an idea of what structure to go with, you need a larger front because we typically put bedrooms up against the uh, front to to meet ventilation, uh, uh, egress, and lighting, natural lighting. And uh, so we kind of figure out from that. Okay, then you sketch rough sketch out a floor plan uh, and and not go into great detail because that's what the draftsman will do. And we kind of figure out you know what size structure we quote uh, plans and engineering. Um, the uh, structural costs are on the. Uh, uh, website, so we'll kind of know. We always uh, want to look at it at the time of the order because steel prices are not very stable anymore. But in general, they're about what they are on the on the website. And then uh, we draw the plans out. Uh, they're engineered by a guy. I mean, they're before that site, the exact site. So we need a soils report. And at that point, uh, you take the plans, and uh, somewhere along the the deal there, the guy's got to check into his financing and get that worked out. Uh, and then um, we've never ever had any trouble with building departments. Uh, we do design the uniform building codes and meet light ventilation, egress stuff. And um, you know we've done them in California, which is the hardest state to get them done in uh, any house in California. But uh, so we generally don't have too much problem with that. And as far as building it, um, you're either gonna 
contract with somebody who's not going to know how to bid it because he hadn't built any. So it's usually time and materials. And we have an awful lot of them that are self-contracted uh, and, in fact, self-built. Uh, so that kind of eliminates the contractor deal. So, you know, it's, it, the, the problem with our business is it's not as easy to do. You know, you can go just like your house. That wasn't as easy to do as going down buying a regular track house. Uh, but I don't want a regular track house, and a regular track house will blow away in the wind. You know, I don't want that. Uh, I'm, I'm a real practical person. I, want, I like things that are substantial, and I don't like worrying about stuff. So, you know, back in the old days out in Prairie when they had all this, guess what? They built dugouts. Uh, so it's a pretty natural thing to to do in extreme weather or extreme climates. But that's that's kind of the process. So on a cost uh, assessment, uh, compared to a conventional housing, uh, is, you know, where is the, the premium or, or the cost savings at? Uh, as far as cost of the house, uh, in general, they're going to run about the same cost per square foot as a medium-priced custom home in a given area. And that, of course, you know, fluctuates a lot. Durango is probably 200 bucks a foot, Oklahoma most of Texas, you know, uh, probably a hundred bucks or so. In the southeastern part of the United States, probably about the same hundred bucks. So, you know, so it fluctuates all over. Denver's probably a couple hundred. California's high. But anyway, that'll give you a ballpark idea of, of what it's going to cost. And then you just kind of go from there. Yeah. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. And then I think that one of the things, of course, that we really need to look at on the cost is the cost of total home ownership, not just the cost of construction. Yeah, you know, you got to figure it in, and sometimes the lender will take that into effect. But in general, being very conservative, you should have a utility bill that's about half uh, of a conventional house. You know, you have to think, okay, I'll build a very well-insulated above-grade house. Okay, but all insulation does is slow down the transfer of energy, heat or cold. Well, an earth sheltered home actually makes temperature because when you put the dirt around it, the dirt doesn't really change temperatures much during the year. You know, at 10 feet, it typically will fluctuate, you know, what, 10 degrees or something from winter to summer. And an above-grade house, if it's 100 outside and you don't put anything on the inside, it's 100 inside. All it does is slow down the transfer. Uh, but with an earth-sheltered house, uh, if the average earth temperature, they always say it's 55, but in Phoenix, it's 6 feet. You know, at the end of the summer, it's 80. Uh, so it varies a lot. But basically, if you don't put any heat into the house, it's going to take on the temperature of the dirt around it as opposed to the air around a conventional house. Plus, you have uh, the advantage of wind chill not having any effect. You know, you can blow a 40-mile-an-hour wind across the dirt on this thing. It has no effect. You blow that across a house, above-grade house that's even heavily insulated, it will have an effect. And so, okay, you got that. Maintenance-wise, there's really not much to do on the outside. Uh, you need to waterproof it correctly and insulate it before you fill it up or uh, backfill it and all that. But, you know, I would say the uh, external uh, maintenance costs, the utility bills, and in West Texas, in some areas where they have extreme weather, usually you'll get about the lowest insurance rate they got. Now, in Durango, it doesn't make much difference because we don't have really extreme weather as far as damaging winds or that sort of thing. But we've done some of them in West Texas years ago, and uh, they seem to me like they always had about the least expensive rate they could find. 
On uh, one of the questions I've always had is on how important site selection is and how things like slope and and rock content affect things. For instance, here on my property, I've got about a foot of soil, and then I hit limestone, and I got about a foot or two of it that's chunky, and then I hit slab. You so know, as far as going down, you can only go down so far. <laughs> you know, you're asking really smart questions. I I really appreciate that. Um, a lot of people think you have to have a really steep hillside to build one of these, and actually that's the worst case. Because if mm. you go back in, say, a 45-degree slope of a hill, well, the front of the house may be at grade zero. The back of that thing could be 40 feet deep. You're talking a monster excavation cost, which is, you know, you don't want that. The other thing is you'll wind up with so much dirt over it, your foundation costs get so big because they got to be big. So the ideal situation, actually, is to build it on uh, slight sloping, and even flat ground works fine. And I just had this conversation with this guy in Oklahoma um, he was asked this exact question, facing due south is what you want it to do because you get no direct sun in the summer, lots of direct sun in the winter. And the main thing you want to look at, actually, after you decide, you know, kind of where is all that, is rocks. Uh, if you have to blast, that makes that ex excavation very, very expensive. And it's very highly regulated anymore. You can do it yourself, but most people won't do that anymore. Most people don't know how. So sure. if you've got a blast down in that rock, it's going to get expensive. So in that case, you would probably want to, you know, go down to you got a stable footer, which is, you know, foot or two in most places, or undisturbed soil, and build it there and then haul in backfill. And then the trick there is you don't want to haul the backfill in very far because truck time is expensive. So, sure. you know, build a pond, rearrange the landscape and whatever. But, I mean, you hit right on it. Uh, that can drive the cost up a lot. Uh, or if you're being smart about it, it can be very manageable. On on that note, when we look at the cover, so I've got a flat piece. I can only go down so much. I have to bring fill in. To get the, the full advantage of being an earth-sheltered home, how much cover do I generally require? Well, on the very top, we don't want to see much more than two feet. And on an arch shape, the, there's hardly any surface area at the top, so it has really not much effect. People always want to put six or eight feet on them. But if you do that, it, it does. there's two problems. One of them is it makes... When you come off at, say, a 45-degree angle, you've got so much weight on there, the shell will handle it. The shell is very, very strong, and you can beef it up with, you know, another inch of concrete and add a little more steel. And not normally, you even have to do that. But the footers themselves, since they're bearing dead load, can get tremendous. They're already pretty good size. Average would probably be, you know, 18 inches deep, uh, 4 foot wide, you know, somewhere in that range, 4 to 5 feet, depending on the loading. Um, and then the other thing, though, you got to remember you got retaining walls. So if you put a tremendous amount of dirt on the top, then the retaining walls, they're flat, and therefore they're not as strong as the arches and stuff. They get very expensive. So what you want to do to answer your question is you want to put as much dirt up on there as you can, and that would be two foot of dirt over the top and then coming off at usually 45 degrees or so, you know, to get enough dirt up there. And that's usually enough to moderate the temperatures a lot. And I'll give you a great example. It was, uh, I think, in, uh, in, in Colorado, 6,500 feet in the edge of the Rockies. I didn't turn the heat on here until December. And oh, that's wow. the other thing that we didn't talk about is the flywheel. They always talk about the flywheel effect. But the time summer's over, all that heat has gotten down to, say, 10 feet or so. It's The soil's going to be about as hot as it's going to be at the end of summer. 
Well, that's when the cold weather comes in, so you've got the heat against the walls, which, again, it's not a big bunch of heat, but it's warmer than it was at the end of winter. Well, you go into summer, you may not have to turn the air conditioner on if you have one uh, until maybe mid part of summer. And by then, the soil temperature is starting to heat up, and it starts the whole cycle again. And, it, you know, it's one of those things uh, that actually works exactly like it's supposed to. It's just amazing. Yeah, I mean, I, I grew up in a family of coal miners, and I didn't spend a lot of time down underground, but a little bit. And what I remember is once you got down in the mine, if uh, if it was 13 degrees below zero above the surface, it was about 60 degrees in the mine. And if you went down in there when it was 110 degrees, it was about 60 degrees down in the mine. It was always pretty much the same. Yeah, it you know, it, it just works fine. You know, uh, I think we had minus 26 or something here this year, which is cold for here. Normally cold here is minus 10 and usually above 10 to 15. You know, it, it's not a really bad climate, but, but we had that. And, you know, I got up in the morning and saw the weather. And I thought, good grief, you know, that's that's cold. I went in, you know, we got tile floors in the kitchen, and I'm barefooted. I'm thinking, you know, I must have left the heat on last night because normally we don't run the heat overnight because we don't need it. There's no heat on. It felt like a heater was on. And I thought, you know what, this is just great. <laughs> so um, if somebody wants to do this, uh, you kind of explain the, the construction uh, process and the design process. Are there maybe a few things they should ask themselves before they actually decide this is right for them? Well, you know, essentially the stuff you're asking today is the stuff they should ask and, and generally what people do ask. But I, I would say is, uh, you know, if you want it the easiest thing it can be, go buy a track house. You can go down there, sign the papers, they check your credit, you move in, you know, you're done. Uh, so these are going to be typically more of a problem, but you're going to get way more house. I mean, definitely. These will never be in a track home situation, I don't think. Uh, they're a custom home. And, um, you know, and they are different and all that. So it's a little more trouble to build it, probably be a little bit more trouble to finance sometimes, not always. Um, and, you know, you need a site that's facing south. And just like you were talking about rock, you don't, you know, that's a big uh, factor. You don't want to spend a bazillion dollars blasting a hole that you don't have to and that sort of thing. So I, I think, you know, it takes a little bit of a special mindset. And the people we deal with, uh, it's a fun business because the people we deal with are typically – Really practical down there with people that are thinking ahead, uh, you know, want something practical that works. They don't care about the foo-foo stuff so much. And hmm. so, you know, but I'd say generally the stuff you're asking are well-thought-out questions, and that's typically what's on people's minds. Awesome. Is there any particular, I mean, we've already talked about it, too much slope, too much rock. Are there any other particular climates or environments that maybe it's not really suited for? Like I think of immediately, like I grew up uh, in kind of split between Pennsylvania and Florida. There's parts of Florida where the water tables, you know, three feet down, people drill hoses or uh, wells with a garden hose. And um, are there places where maybe it's too wet or the, the conditions just aren't right for this? Well, if you have a very high water table, you can build below the water table. But frankly, that's just asking for problems. Um, you know, it's certainly lots and lots of structures have been built below grade, uh, a lot of commercial stuff. But, but I wouldn't want to build below the water grade. The other thing is you live in a climate that, you know, is – fluctuates between 70 and 80 degrees year-round, what, what would you need one of these for? Except 
The one mm. thing is, you live in a climate like that, you're going to have hurricanes typically, and that is a good reason to have them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you so, bet it is. So, you know, you can always make a case for the structures, but as far as energy savings, you can certainly get into a, a climate that you know, there's not that much benefit. The other thing is, you deal uh, with somebody in a real high humidity area, they're going to need a small air conditioner dehumidifier because while the houses, their sheltered houses, won't make a house more humid if they're waterproof correctly, uh, it's not going to make it any better either. So if it's 99% humidity outside, it's going to be humid inside too. So you know you got to run something because the only way you can beat that is you know with uh, mechanical means, air conditioned dehumidifier, or have a thatched up where the breeze blows through it all the time. I mean that that's really the extremes that you have to go. So if you're living off the grid, you know, we have a lot of people interested in these houses that want to do photovoltaics and that sort of thing, then an air-conditioned dehumidifier, you know, runs a fairly heavy load compared to lots of other things, so that's an extra consideration. But that's about it. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I think that, I mean, where I see these being ideal is places where it gets hot and it's not too humid. Um, and I almost see it being the only answer to get really energy efficient, uh, and especially to go to an off-grid level if you're going to live in Texas. I mean, I think about people I've visited up in New Hampshire and Vermont and all, and they build very beautiful wood frame homes, high ceilings. They allow the air to flow through. They're well insulated. They heat with wood in the winter. And they go, see, we don't need an air conditioner. And I'm like, well, it's August, and it's uh 81 degrees for the high today, and uh, try this when it's 115 degrees. But yet I see earth sheltering working in those environments where it's that hot. You mentioned you manufacture in Phoenix, and you've done a lot of these out there. Um, I've been in earth sheltered homes in really hot climates, and it's amazing how well they do work. Yeah, it feels like you got the air conditioner on. But the other thing is the climate you were talking about up in the northeast, very, very cold. So actually the the highest concentration of earth-sheltered homes are probably in the northeast just because of the, I mean, the, the winters there are brutal. I mean, yeah. you know, Colorado's yeah. cold, but up there it's just brutal. And <laughs> uh, so if you have any extreme hot or cold, I think that's the way to go. The humidity thing is you you got to beat that. And, of course, you can ventilate these houses easily. You know, I have a back door in mine. You know, it's just uh, uh, so I, I do open the windows in uh, all kinds of weather, you know, just to get the, the uh, breeze through the place. In the summertime, I leave the windows open at night, close them during the day because it cools down here. Uh, and so it cools down during the day, uh, and, uh, during the night rather, and, and I just closed up during the night. And, you know, you can leave the windows open a little bit and get a real nice draft through it. So it can be done. It's usually more trouble, uh, you know, to do that in one of these houses. You can't just pop an opening anywhere you want it, but sure. you can essentially do that. But you have a great example on controlling the humidity and stuff, uh, with a wood structure because you can do that. We, we did a lot of them in the early part of our career where we had cupolas on the top of them, and that was essentially the same thing. The windows in the cupola you could open, and uh, the cupola kind of acted as a heat trap. It it uh, stratified the hottest air up the top. You open the window, it goes away. Now you got to worry about where does the air come from to sure. replace it. Well, that comes from outside, so if you have a air-to-air heat exchanger, that can help it. Um, actually, on the first one, we did uh, buried earth tubes, and in Phoenix, that actually didn't work very well because it's so blasted hot there. By the midsummer, the earth tubes themselves, after handling so much volume of hot air, become 
hotter than you want it on the inside. They're never going to be 120, but it might yeah. be 80. You know, yeah. it could be that easily. So I kind of think uh, in Phoenix, all the, we did a lot of them around there. Uh, a conventional air conditioner, we basically sized it to about half of what you would in a normal house, size the air handler to the actual volume, and, you know, it worked well. We we had the Salt River Project that runs the nuclear plant out there, business once, and they said we had the lowest utility bill of any house, like, you know, similar size and everything they'd ever seen. So, yeah. and, and we ran a conventional life. You know, we're not, uh, let me give you a great example of uh, what you're fighting with in this business. I had a guy come by. And he said, oh, this is nice. You know, we were in all the papers and the TV, you know, we're big deals down there for a while. And, uh, he, and so he asked about the utility bill, and we told him, he said, well, I live in a conventional place, and my utility bills are exactly the same. I said, well, good, you know, good for you. He said, yeah. would you like to see my place? And I said, I really don't want to, <laughs> you know. But yeah. so we go over to his place. But what he didn't tell me was the inside of the house is 90 degrees and, oh, well. and he didn't turn the air conditioner on, and, you know, he was miserable. Well, yeah. we were living in a place with the same utility bills that was very pleasant to live, very pleasant to live. And, you know, okay, his utility bills were the same, but, my gosh, you'd want to live there, you know? Yeah, definitely. I, I deal with the same thing with, with developing landscaping with irrigation, and people want to do it with no irrigation because that's the, the mythical dream, you know, and it, it'll work in some climates, and you go, but, do you do you not understand that we're talking about building a system you might irrigate once a week for the two hottest months out of the year versus a, a, a conventional system you have to irrigate six months out of the year and you have to irrigate it every other day? And it, it, that's the same. In fact, your analogy is exactly what I've been using to convince people on the irrigation thing, that when we make a really energy-efficient house, that doesn't mean we don't use any air conditioning. It just means we use a hell of a lot less of it. We get a hell of a lot more efficiency out of it and a hell of a lot less cost. Yeah. I mean, that that's what you got to talk about. It's got to be apples to apples. I mean, you know, if you keep your house at 80, I keep mine at 70. Well, that's a huge difference in energy bills. Uh, and, you know, and there are people in this business tell you don't need any heating and air conditioning. Well, you know, we go shoot the Nationals in Phoenix in the middle of February every year, and uh, it's colder than the devil up here. I just turn everything off and leave it. I don't have to worry about nothing. And the house mm. will settle in after about two weeks at about 55, 58 in, in the Rockies in the winter. The worst mm. month, you know, it's, uh, does good. So if you can live with 55 to 58, okay, I could make some wild claims. You don't need anything, but that's sure. not the way most people live. You know, put on a sweater, you're fine. And, you know, in a survival situation, the, the total utility grid goes down. It won't affect my life that much. You can live at 55 then. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, you know, hey, I can live in this place just fine at 55. I may not want to, but I'm not freezing here. I'll just put on a sweater and deal with it, you know. 55 is better than 10 below. Oh, yeah. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, One more question on this, and then I want to ask you a few things about uh, kind of the the evil Roy side of things with the guns. Um, One concern I've always had with anything earth-sheltered, and this is probably a lot to do with the fact that I grew up in mining country, with basements up there where we have uh, radon issues. Are there concerns about that? And is that somewhat geographic in nature? Yeah, it's geographic, but 
but the answer to radon is just simply ventilation. Uh, and, and actually, the other thing is the radon comes in typically through cracks in the walls and that sort of thing, which, you know, with a, with a thin shell, all the loading is compressive, so it's actually pushing the structure together. And okay. so typically, uh, well, we've never, as far as I know, we've never had anybody with a displacement crack in a shell. I mean, that would be a not a good thing, but, but it's all pushing together. You do flat roof, flat walls, flat floor, all the forces are trying to push that apart, and you can break them. You know, it's like a flat yeah. painting wall. And so to answer your question, um, I think it's probably a good idea to run an air-to-air heat exchanger in any airtight house. Now, I don't have one in mine. I can just open the windows, but... Uh, air-to-air heat exchanger, you know, uses the outgoing air to condition the incoming air, and they're, what, 70% efficient or 80, whatever they are, um, and they run on 60 watts or something like that, real low-powered fan. And so you can pretty much defeat that with that. But if you don't ventilate it any with an airtight house, and these are extremely airtight, you have internal pollutants as well. And so you can make a case, oh, hey, that's dangerous. Well, then, okay, what do you want, all the walls to leak? You know, I mean, yeah, you know, so you're going to you're gonna be running 100 cords of wood to heat your little house, I mean, because there's gaps in the wall. So you don't want that extreme either. But, but I think some ventilation will help. And radon is, I never even hear about it anymore. I used to, I guess, ask that question all the time. And I guess it's just not in the news or whatever and, you know, I kind of think it's one of those overrated issues to start with. But ventilation, here they have some of that. You know, the uh, not too many people know, but Durango was the site of the mill for the the uranium for mill for the Manhattan Project. Yeah, they, I got you. And so they they got some of that uh, uh, tailings were actually used as backfill for conventional mm. homes years ago. So it's a little bit of an issue. But what they do is ventilate the crawl space. That's gotcha. exactly what they do. That makes sense. I mean, I think part of it was where I grew up, a lot of the houses were 150 years old. Yeah. And, yeah, I mean, they, the, the, a cellar or a basement under one of those was, you know, they dug it out and they built up a rock foundation and threw a house on it. Yeah, you uh, get water, you know, intrusion and that sort of thing, and that's yeah. generally where it comes from. So let's talk a little bit about your alter ego. Uh, I don't know a ton about cowboy action shooting, but I do know that uh, you're probably Gene in your day-to-day life and you're evil Roy. Uh, in your persona and your cowboy action shooting. So, um, again, I'm not a big uh, student of the, the cowboy action world, but could you tell us a little bit about that and your involvement with it? Yeah, uh, it, it's been, you know, my first life, when I lived in West Texas, I owned a couple of Honda motorcycle dealerships, and so we raced motorcycles. That was our whole life. That was my first life. And so my second life, uh, you know, not counting their sheltered stuff, which is obviously part of that too, uh, is the shooting. And I actually started, uh, I was 50 years old, which is pretty old to start it, but we were keeping a couple of grandkids for a year, and... um I was just looking for something to do. You know, I was too old to race motorcycles, and I'd done martial arts stuff for years. I was too old to do that. You're old at that at 30. Uh, yeah. And we went out to watch a match while they were here, and there was a cowboy action match out here. And I thought, you know what? I can do that till I get really old. So that's, I started doing it, and, uh, you know, I like to shoot, so I got very serious about practicing. And, you know, I won 24, 25 world and national championships over the years, and, um, yeah, I actually got very famous over it, which just surprises the heck out of me. You know, it was never intended to be anything but just a good time. And, uh, it, it's just been lots of fun. And, and again, I think I said earlier, we've taught schools 
um, all over the United States. We've taught in Finland and Sweden and Norway and New Zealand. And um, I'm extremely well known to that. I actually got in Forbes magazine because of my shooting. If you can imagine that, I've been in my business in business my whole life, and Forbes magazine sent. Uh, uh, a little Jewish guy out to the shooting school in Cheyenne one year to write a thing about leisure. You know, he ran the leisure thing. Of all things, I got in Forbes magazine for shooting. I just couldn't believe that. Absolutely. So um, when people are, like, looking at cowboy action shooting, I mean, it, it sounds like something that's pretty easy to, to get into, and maybe it becomes something that can become <laughs> somewhat con- uh, life-consuming. It can, um, and for some people, it is their life. You know, they travel around motorhomes and fifth wheels, you know, pretty much the whole year doing it. Uh, but, you know, it's like any other sport. You know, you could you could say it's a lot like golf, and I've never played a single round of golf, but um, your average shooter is a duffer, uh, just like golf, just like anything. You know, Tiger Woods is never competing against 40 million golfers. He's always competing against five people, you know, the guys he's got to beat. And it's the same way. If you do it on a casual basis, uh, your concern is going to the local matches and beating your buddy Fred or whoever uh, and going out and eating lunch afterwards, great time. And it is fun. You know, a lot of people do it because they like to dress up like cowboys and, and all that. So, you know, in this sport, it's a dress to shoot or shoot to dress. I mean, you know, and, and they get a little bit of criticism about you guys aren't serious enough and you know, all you're doing is dressing up. And, and there is certainly that part of the sport, which is as good a reason to shoot as any. But if you're actually trying to win something, uh, you know, I'm 70 now, but when I was shooting hard, I have, I was shooting five to seven days a week, sometimes twice a day, working out in the gym and loading at night to, to get to where I could win big matches. And it is extremely competitive uh, at that level. I'll be the first to admit that combat shooting your average guy may be be more serious than your average cowboy shooter but you take a look at what some of these top shooters are doing with old single action lever action guns they'll run them every bit as fast as you can run a semi-automatic uh and maybe even faster they, the guns are very very quick I, i've been really amazed at some of the stuff that i've seen you guys do um it, it it does seem uh, almost uh, unbelievable. Some of the stuff that you know we used to watch in uh, old West movies uh, that I'm sure was not accurate for the time, but in of itself seemed impossible. And I've seen reality do things as far as speed uh, and consistency that even the uh, the old movie people didn't go that far out on a limb. Well, yeah, and a lot of people think this is fast draw, and, and I should explain what it is. Uh, it's not fast draw. Fast draw uses blanks, shooting at balloons, whatever. This live ammo. Sure. Uh, two pistols, rifle and a shotgun, you know, uh, single action, uh, revolvers, uh, lever action rifles, uh, either, uh, 1897 pump or double barrel shotguns, real round, shoot at steel, uh, five seconds for a miss, um, and so, uh, it, it's, it's real ammo and all that. It's fairly, they usually use pretty low powered ammo, but nevertheless, it's full ammo, uh, uh real ammo, rather, excuse me. And, um, it's, uh, it's amazing what they do. I mean, you know, of course, you know, John Wayne take a shot at somebody with a hundred yards standing on a bluff with his pistol, knock him right off there. And of course, that's not happening. But those guys, uh, you know, even in the movie stuff, they can't even comprehend what you can do with a single action pistol. There's guys shooting these pistols that can shoot them faster than you can pull the trigger on a Glock or a 1911. All but a few of the very, 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 very top shooters. But you know, I do demos with my single actions, and I can get two shots off with a split between the two shots. 
I can get it down so fast the timer won't pick the shot up, and that's down to like a point oh eight down here. Now I don't shoot matches that fast; that's just a show off speed. But there's actually guys that are running the matches at a point two and under splits. That's very hard to do with a modern gun. I mean, get on target and line up the sights and pull the trigger and hit anything a point two. Uh, but uh, there's guys that routinely do that and, and actually faster. So it's uh, it's just truly amazing. Plus, it's you know the main thing I got in for it's just a lot of fun. Yeah, it seems like it. Um, could you talk about how the skills translate, right? Because you you probably you know you're probably a guy with a, uh, a carry permit and you probably carry to protect yourself, but you're you're probably not carrying a single action uh, army or something uh, in your day to day life. But it, the, the skills have to translate. Yeah, trigger time is trigger time, you know, and and, and that's a real good uh, question. Is uh, the single, I don't carry a single action. I carry a Glock Model 19, uh, and it's the reload. It's not, you know, your average defensive uh, round counts, one, two, or three, or whatever. Uh, the problem now is if somebody's after you and your family, you know, this high magazine thing is a great example. Well, how many rounds do you need? Well, you know, your average thing is one to two, three rounds, but you get three guys that break into your house. It's dark. Everybody's running around. They ain't in one place. A 30-round magazine in an AR is not something you would not want to have. I mean, yeah, sure. give me that. Because you might burn up every round. And you got to remember that cops carry typically 15, 17-round magazines. It's not unusual at all for two cops standing back-to-back to empty those guns at two or three guys and not kill any of them. So if it's good enough for the cops, it's good enough for me. You know, I'm very, very involved in the gun rights stuff and uh, actually testified in Denver here, which didn't do a bit of good, of course. Uh, but, but all this stuff is absurd. There's never been a single study done um, that had any validity that said the size of the magazine affects, you know, any of these mass murderers or types. It just doesn't have any effect at all. You just carry more magazines. And, you know, this thing about semi-autos and all that, back in the 1800s, those guys carried four or five pistols. You know, you you can't, if somebody's wanting to hurt somebody, you can't legislate what they're going to do it with. Uh, if you really want to do it, you do it with a bomb, which has just been re-demonstrated. I mean, but, you know, you, uh, a firearm is actually fairly ineffective to dealing with large amounts of people. Um, so, you know, yeah, I carry a, a Glock 19. I'm very happy with it. We shoot 1911s in a competition. It's called Wild Bunch. Um, that's a kind of an offshoot of SAS. They use the 1911 and 45 caliber lever guns, and a, and a, you have to use a pump shotgun in that. Um, and um, That sounds like something I could get into. I'm a 1911 guy. I, mean, uh, that's, yeah. <laughs> I got some good 1911s, and I'll tell you, uh, I've got uh, a Colt Models uh, Series 70, the guy worked out for me with all Wilson parts and all that stuff. And I'll tell you the truth, as much fun, as, uh, cowboy shooting is a lot of fun, but wild bunch shooting is the most fun. And the thing is, on the cowboy stuff, you have to load the shotgun on the clock. You know, that's part of the skills. Uh, there are guys around can start with an empty shotgun and load and fire four shots in a double barrel in like two and a half seconds. I mean, literally. I'm not making a, a teeny exaggeration whatsoever. Start with an unloaded gun, hands on the gun, and uh, in, in two and a half, 275, something like that, we'll, we'll load and fire four rounds. It's just unbelievable. Anyway, the Wild Bunch, you have to use a pump, but you can start with a pump stoked. It's got to be a 97 or a Model 12. Um, and that's only two shotguns you can use. But typical stage, you have four to six rounds, so you need to modify the gun where they'll hold six. And basically, you pick it up. You just get to 
pumping away, and then uh, you your 45 caliber, uh, you can use anything from uh, 38, 40, 44, 40, 45. 45 is the most popular in the rifle. Uh, they're heavy rounds, and, and we do have a power factor in that. You know, with the Cowboy, you can use just about anything, and some of them use pretty light rounds. But with a Wild Bunch, you've got to have a power, minimum power factor of 150, and I always set mine up about 160, which is a fairly decent load. And then in a 1911, we'll shoot uh, all at steel, lots of knockdowns. Some of the in the Wild Bunch, they're a lot harder targets. They're smaller, further out, and a lot of knockdowns, so you have to have the power and the accuracy. But we'll run through... Uh, we, we load five-round magazines, so we get more mag changes in it. Uh, but you can run through uh, four to six magazines on a stage, just the pistol plus the other stuff. I mean, it is fun. Uh, yeah, I'm looking it up on the, the the site right now, and it looks really, really cool. Uh, it's something I'm going to have to dig into more. And, uh, hey, man, I appreciate you being with us today. I didn't know I was going to get to talk about two cool subjects today. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty passionate about the gun stuff. It's, uh, like I said, motorcycles. First part of life, definitely the gun stuff's on the second, uh, you know, not counting the business, of course, but it's been lots of fun. And if you have a, you know, any desire to get out and shoot, you'll learn more in one match uh, as far as shooting and shooting under pressure than you will five years working by yourself out shooting uh, pop bottles or tin cans or something. You know, it's just, uh, it, like you brought up earlier, uh, is a great question. Does that affect my Glock shooting? Hell yeah, it affects my Glock shooting. It makes me a better shooter, you know, because I'm on the sights, whether it's a single action or the 1911 or my Glock. Triggers are a little bit different and all that, um, but it's, you know, trigger time's trigger time. Absolutely. Well, anyway, I appreciate you being with us today. And, uh, again, I'm happy to hear that you are going to become a Texan again. Uh, if you could do me a favor, when you do leave Colorado, I have this Walking to Freedom project, and uh, it's a little form that we have set up. And uh, we're asking people when they leave to leave behind a goodbye letter uh, to their local state and state officials and explain to them why they've chosen to take their time, their talent, their money, and their business and go elsewhere. You know, and, uh, I will do that. Uh, that. Actually, in my... Uh you know, I, I testified to the legislature in my letters to the congressman and all that. I told him, you're losing two national businesses. Uh, <laughs> I have CPAs, attorneys, uh, buying Fords to Ford House, on and on and on. That's going to Texas, and it's because you're being stupid. You know, if one of these laws had any effect at all, if it interfered with our rights, I'd still be against it. fact is, all this stuff is for show, and all it's doing is driving people like me out of the state, which is, you know, I contribute a lot of money to this state, uh, in the amount of money that I bring here and the amount of people I bring here, and it's going to Texas, and I'm thrilled about it. Yeah, because I just can't imagine the guy that's going to go into a theater and shoot people or into a school and shoot people and go, you know, I would like to do this with 30-round magazines, but the state's limited me to 15-round magazines, so when I go commit mass murder, that's what I'm going to use. And, and I think that the the delusional nature of politicians, especially the politicians that know nothing about guns that want to re regulate them is just, uh, it's mind-boggling. You have, a, I think it's a state standard or a state rep up there, this woman, I don't remember her name, but I played her thing on the air where she didn't even understand what a magazine was. She said once they shoot them, they're gone. Yeah, she's uh, one of the chief proponents of the deal. They, that's the thing. I testified, and, and then after I testified, they said, would you mind if I ask you a question? I said, no, I'd be happy to answer it. They said, well, can you, we've had two testimonies today that said you can buy a gun online and escape the background check. And I said, well, you can't do that. They said, but we've had to. I said, they lied to you, guy. They lied to yeah. you. I'm a federal firearms dealer, have been for over 20 years. It's against the law. 
for me to sell yep. you a gun, regardless of where it's sold, gun show. And, you know, I just saw a thing on the news today, you know, the bill failed that would have required a background check at gun shows and uh, online sales. Well, you you can't buy them that way. I mean, from a dealer. Now, if you go to an individual and he yep. sells you a gun at a gun show, if he delivers it to you face-to-face, except in Colorado, okay, that's good. You should be able to sell your own guns. But if you order one, even to an individual out of state, he's got to ship you, it to an FFL. And when the FFL correct, if, if I put my gun on Gun Broker right now, I put one of my ARs up there, and you look at it and go, "Gee, I'd like to buy that." I can't ship it to you. No, I, you tell me your FFA. I ship it to him or FFL, and I ship it to them, and then then you go there and pay the transfer fee, and and, and they do the paperwork. Right. It's against federal law for you to ship it. You know, and you just touched on a deal. I mean, I can just talk all day about this stuff. But, you know, when John Kennedy got killed, President Kennedy, what did they do? Oh, yeah. What did they do? Well, they made cheap, inaccurate rifles hard to get. They didn't want you to mail it. He, he shot, one, shot Kennedy with an Italian bolt-action rifle with a cruddy scope on it. So they made those hard to get. Does that make any sense? When Robert Kennedy got shot, they made cheap handguns hard to get. Does that make any yeah. sense? Uh, McVeigh blew up the federal building with fertilizer. They clamped down on fertilizer. By good grief, you know, does anybody think that has any effect? It doesn't. It's the stupidest thing you've ever heard. And, and for people that believe that, I just, I've just i gone from thinking, well, everybody's entitled to their opinion to they're just stupid. I mean, I, Yeah, sorry, people would say there's no stupid questions. They've never been the one answering the questions. Uh, <laughs> I'm serious. You know, sometimes there are stupid questions. And, you know, you bring up a good point because, like, we just had this bombing up in uh, in Mass, and uh, people have emailed me, and it almost sounds like a stupid question, but this one isn't. Could this make getting pressure cookers more difficult? Well, and, and my instinct is no, but, you know, when you look at the track record of the idiocy of government, it's not incomprehensible. I think what they'll do, I think there will be people, honestly, that will call for control on pressure cookers. But the other thing that I'm afraid of is the guys like you and me that reload a lot, they'll say, oh, they'll discover at some point they had to make something blow up. Yeah. And yeah. they'll say, well, he could just walk, even if he didn't, which, you know, who knows what he used for a deal. Oh, yeah. you mean you can just walk into Cabela's and buy a pound of gunpowder? Oh, yeah. my God, we can't have that. So there'll be a big campaign on that. I'll bet you money on that. And, of course, and again, you can't stop some fool that's out to kill a bunch of people unless you shoot him. And the other thing is the Colorado shooting, you know, in the theater, uh, it was in a gun-free zone. It was the only theater within blocks and blocks and blocks that had a sign-up says no guns. Yeah. Guess yeah. what he went to? If Gee, I, if I had been in that theater and he'd have started popping them rounds, if he hadn't got us first, I had got night sights on my Glock. I could pull that, shot that sucker in about three or four seconds. And whatever he'd have got before that is all he would have got. Anybody in that whole theater that had a gun could at least mess him up some. You know, they said he had a bulletproof vest. He didn't. Wouldn't have mattered. But he didn't have one. It was just a vest. Uh, and, you know, they're, they're just absolutely ignorant. Columbine, which is the poster boy for uh, uh, these mass shootings, they didn't use head route. They used 10-round magazines. They didn't use a single high cap. Use a double barrel shotgun. Well, they were running around with high points. I mean, yeah, high about as low end as you get. And ten round magazines, the worst guns that you could pick. Double sawed off double barrel, which bloodied your hands up because they kicked so hard. A cheap pump, they'd sawed off. In a high point, they yeah. all had ten round magazines. So the big poster boy on high cap magazines is on a shooting that didn't use high cap mags. 
Wow, Typical. it doesn't surprise me. It doesn't surprise me at all. Um, and you, you bring up a point about the ineffectiveness of firearms for this type of thing. It makes a big statement. It's something a lot of people that do it naturally gravitate to. But if I want to kill a bunch of people in a theater, uh, I'd probably use a couple bottles full of gasoline and some rags. Of course. I mean, the, the damage that you could do with that versus a gun uh, and extricate yourself and disappear with, without being caught is far more insidious than what can be done with a gun. Yeah, just look overseas. What do they use? Bombs. Bombs. Know, and, uh, you know, it's just, it's just absolutely silly, all this stuff. But, the, you know, the uh, uh, the Democrats, liberals, whatever, I know I'll make some people mad here, but they're just all totally for symbols. Uh, they've got, you know, you say, well, this will never work. It won't make it. we got to start somewhere. we got to do something. we got to do something. That's the match. We have to do something. Even if it's wrong, you know. Even if it's wrong, even the coverage on this stuff, like I don't want to say anything negative about the, the people that you know were injured or killed in the the bombings, but this is now on our TV, twenty four seven, three sixty five, you know, nonstop for until something new comes up. And, and the reality is, more people probably died on the highway in Illinois yesterday oh, uh, than died in the Massachusetts bombings. Right, and you know, the biggest school catastrophe actually was in the early nineteen hundreds. Some janitor blew a school up with a bomb. Oh, yep. You know, yeah, we've talked about that guns. before. So, but, you know, all this is just uh, we got to do something, you know, just make us look good. We actually did something, even though it didn't do anything, whatever. And it just, you know, it makes you ill because every time we're just living from catastrophe to catastrophe uh, with our rights. Every time something happens, you can just hold your breath because they're going to take something away from us. It doesn't mean anything. And it's just a matter of time. Uh, if they continue along that path, you have no freedoms. It's, it's not whether they're going to do it. It's just how long it's going to take them to do it. Well, come on back down to Texas, Gene. We're, we've, uh, we're, we're working on a law down here that basically says unconstitutional federal gun laws will not be enforced in the state of Texas and gives local officials the authority to arrest federal officials who try to, uh, to enforce them. That would, that's kind of the antithesis of what Colorado and Connecticut and other states are doing. Well, listen, you want any help with that stuff, you let me know. We won't be too far apart. Maybe you can come down and shoot with me a little bit. That'd be I'd fun. love to, man. I'll bring my 1911, and you can school me on, uh, on uh, cowboy action shooting as well. That sounds great. All right, Gene. Well, thanks for being with us today. And, folks, with that, this has been uh, Jack Spirico today along with Gene Piercy, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.
pay Nobody up there cares They're living for today Yeah.